0: Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by the multiple upcoming series of webinars that we have, where we're talking about leadership, accountability, context, and how, can, how you can drive effective results. You can find information about how to register for all of those webinars in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 299. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I'll be talking to somebody I talk to just about every day, our CEO and founder of Criteria for Success, Charles Bernard. Uh, I was looking through our records and our history and realized it's been quite a while since we've had him on the podcast, and our listeners, who have been listeners for a while might remember that he's actually been working on a book And lately, he's been doing a lot of work and research into leadership. So I thought it would be a great time to bring him back to the podcast um, and share with us some of what he's learning from his research, as well as from the conversations that he has with leaders. So it's great to have you back, Charles.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, Long time no speak since 10 a.m. this morning. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, actually a pretty long gap for us. (laughs) We're definitely in back-to-back Zooms quite often lately, uh, but this is good, and we're we're rolling from this into some back-to-back Zooms. So I'd like to give our listeners a chance to catch up. Obviously, some people might have heard from you quite a few times, but others, this might be their first time. We always welcome new guests. So I'd love it if you could remind our listeners what your book is about.
1: Sure. So the title I'm working on is Enabling Buying in a World of Selling. And it's about what the title says, focusing on the buying experience versus the selling experience. Mm. But the interesting twist that I think a lot of people were, uh, miss is the inner world of selling piece. And I thought long and hard about just enabling buying and leaving out the second part. But I wanted to leave it in there because I still think even though I'm in the book giving recommendations and talking about helping buyers buy, I still think there's a big, what I call gravitational pull from the seller and the selling organization to focus on selling. So that's why I kept the inner world of selling part. And it talks about what I just said, but it also talks about developing uh, relationships that work between buyers and sellers. Because oftentimes I find that people may perceive their relationships mm. as being healthy or working when in fact they're not. And that could be on both sides of the equation, the buyer or the seller side. And um, I also cover the topic of best organizational practices. And I'm talking about in a professional context for leadership. It's especially as it relates to growing revenue in an organization. Uh, So just to give you an update, I'm about 60% through the draft, the first draft. And uh, I I went into a little bit of a hiatus early in 2020 last year uh, due to COVID and having to sort of navigate the trials and tribulations associated with dealing with that from a business standpoint. So I sort of put the book writing on hold. But I picked it back up about three months or so ago. And if if you'd like a current update right now, I'm enjoying the research phase, which is gathering institutional support for some of the arguments that I make. So as a writer, I'm, in a sense, putting some theories into words and writing my perspective, but I thought it would be helpful to see if there's agreement out there in the world. So I've been doing quite a bit of research on what are some of the historical as well as current trends in selling and buying. And, uh, along with that is the whole idea of leadership and the different parts of how leadership plays into, uh, from an organisational standpoint, into the driving of uh, best practices. And one thing I just like to mention is that context. In my book, I spend quite a bit of time early on in the book talking about context, which I think plays a big role. And so, people sort of get a little confused sometimes when I mention that. So, an example of context for sellers is to ask themselves what's needed to enable buying when they're interacting with their buyers as contrasted with the question I hear a lot of the time from seller's perspective, which is what's needed to make a sale. And just by simply asking that question, what's needed to enable buying shifts the context of the conversation, the context of the interaction so that it can significantly alter the salesperson's approach and behavior while developing and maintaining a relationship with their buyers. I know that was a really long answer, but (laughs) I just thought I'd try to get in as much as possible because it is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And hopefully I'll one day before I die, finish the book and publish it. And um, it's just one one of these long achievements that's taking me longer than I thought it would.
0: Yeah, but I'm sure listeners could tell by hearing that, that it's definitely a labor of love and something that you're really passionate about and um, pouring your soul into. And so that comes out. Uh, I want to follow up on a few of the different things that you mentioned there, Charles, because there's a lot there. And I think some of it is going to drive the rest of our conversation. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention uh that just called out to me as you were talking, is that piece that you mentioned about how you know you could just write a book about how to enable buying and how to buy better and hope that buyers would read your book and then they would employ those best practices. But I like that you've identified that there are minimum three parties involved in this process. There's the buyer, there's the seller, and then there's the leadership, um, especially on the sales side, but there's also leadership on the buying side. And Yes. Yeah. Each of those people has an agenda. Each of those people is coming from a context. And so you can't just tell one group, this is how you need to do this and expect that they're gonna be able to impact all of the other people around them. It's better if you can, you know, get some of those people on the same page, and certainly giving one person strategies because you know you can't just buy this book and then hand it out at the beginning of your meeting. And say please read this, and then come back to me, and we can have a buying conversation. But um, to to understand the different perspectives, I think is really important, and I'm glad that that's something that you're you're calling out.
1: That's that's really intuitive, Elizabeth, because oftentimes, to your point, I see recommendations, sales training, books, blogs, articles, videos, focused on the buyer and the seller. But to your point, there's a lot happening behind the scenes. And what I mean by that is the buyer's organization and the seller's organization. And within each of those organizations, there are leaders that are driving some of the direction from both the buyer and the seller. So. Um, good for you. You actually um, put together really well thought out comments about what I think is oftentimes missed.
0: Well, I expect a co author credit on your book. So, you know, <laughs> at the very least, you got to call me out in the author's note. Um, so, you I'm going to start with a really big question. And it's, it's not going to be something that's possible to answer comprehensively, necessarily, but I think this is going to help set the context for the rest of our conversation. So I'd love to hear, what are some of the big themes that you've encountered um, as you've been doing all of this research on leadership?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm actually surprised that I can answer that question without giving it a ton of thought because it's very... Uh, recent that I've been writing the book and revisiting the big themes that you just asked about. So I can think of six off the top of my head, because that's kind of how I've divided the book up. Hmm. The first is, as it relates to uh, leadership, is that many people that I talk to, and I know we do a lot of work together, so you're in the same boat. We both talk to people especially with our clients that confuse leadership and management. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really big theme for people in a leadership role, because I think it's important to call out when am I leading and when am I managing? And sometimes I'm doing one or the other, or I'm doing both. And so before getting into the nuances of leadership, I want to start in the book with distinguishing the two roles and whether they're two hats that you wear individually or like I said before, together, it's important to know, am I managing or am I leading right now if I'm having a conversation or influencing others? So that's one big theme. Um, The other that I find also really interesting for me, at least, is that many leaders in an organization don't have titles. And that's why I talk about management. So managers tend to have titles, like you'd have VP of sales, head of operations, CFO, CEO. That's a title-based leader, if you will. But I've used this example. You've probably heard me use this example many times. How many situations have any of the listeners that are listening to this podcast been in where you're on a zoom call and there's a bunch of people and the manager is speaking and no one listens. And then the leader is speaking and everybody listens. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, at least quite often that person that everybody listens to doesn't have a title. So it just is fascinating to me how many leaders there are in an organization that don't have people reporting to them or don't have a title or don't have the status, if you will. And yet they are very significant and practice a lot of leadership, probably because they do something that I think most leaders do, if not every leader does, and that is influence others, whether they report to you or not. So that's kind of like a second big theme.
0: Definitely. I, and, before we move on to the next ones, I just want to um, maybe take a take a deep dive because I feel like these two are are very related. And as you said, um, you know that confusion between leadership and management, I think sometimes that comes out as feeling like one, usually that's leadership is good <laughs> and management is bad. or you have some people who are so focused on management. But they're not really seeing um, that there's the, the kind of leadership that's necessary isn't happening. So I'd love it if you could explain just quickly, what do you view as the difference between leadership and management? I think that's something that our listeners might really appreciate.
1: Yeah, for sure. So in my experience, a manager has an agenda typically, and it's clear. And they're following a policy, a procedure, a goal something that's clear and present and so i would say managers are very much focused from a philosophical standpoint on the present so they want to get something done they want their team to get something done they want to work together and it's generally on a day-to-day more short-term present focused leaders can also do that but i tend to think that leaders tend to be more future-thinking And they're more influencers as opposed to hands-on giving people direction. And that might be something that you've probably, everyone's probably heard of, which is coaching, right? Coaching Mm -hmm. is letting the other person discover for themselves, if you will, what's needed and wanted without spelling it out. Maybe a manager would be more focused on the spelling out part. But the other thing that I think distinguishes leaders from managers in a big way is that leaders are paid to think more about the future and a direction and less about the present. Now, I'm not saying that they ignore the present, but I am saying that leaders are probably more focused on what's the path, where are we getting to, what does... What do, what do things look like around the corner that not everyone can see? And and oftentimes, it's not like this, the, the leader sees what's around the corner and then informs everybody else, because in a way, I think that falls back into management. But it's more like, what is a leader intuiting? What are, if that's a word, I think it is, but yep. what what's their <laughs> intuition and And then they look for verification and maybe they look to their team or they look to their peers to sort of, again, it's a discovery of where do we want to go? What's the future going to look like? What what are the tea leaves telling us? So um, hopefully that's enough of of an explanation that distinguishes the two roles.
0: Absolutely. And what I'm hearing is certainly you need to have both, right? You don't want somebody who's um, just lost in the clouds and future thinking um, and nobody's paying attention to make sure day-to-day stuff gets done. And so right. you, you need that management aspect to kind of follow through. Um, but then so often we've seen people and it's like they have blinders on and they're really just focused on, you know, I do steps one through 10 and then we start again with steps one through 10 and they're not necessarily seeing what's coming, or, um, or even seeing the purpose behind why they're doing those steps. So I think, again, a lot of times a person needs to be able to wear both hats and understanding those two different functions can be really helpful. So I interrupted you um, after one and two. So can you get get us back on track with your um, with your six? What's number three?
1: So number three is, again, something I'm super passionate about, and I've heard you talk about this topic also, so I know you happen to be super passionate about it, and that is that as a leader in an organization, one of your top priorities, if not the top priority, is to enable knowledge transfer in the organization, and and I know that could be a little vague for some people. So I don't mean any old knowledge, um, because obviously people have knowledge and an organization has institutional knowledge. And people might mean, well, what do I mean by transfer? So, what I mean by that more specifically is that there's a couple of models of leadership. And one that I'm not particularly fond of and less passionate about is what I call a hub and spoke model, where Mm the leader is in the middle and the spokes kind of are all the branches to the other people that they're leading or influencing. And inherently that model to me is unwieldy and doesn't really work so well for knowledge transfer. In other words, I'm the knowledge keeper as the leader in that model. And now in a way I'm the bottleneck who has to get information, knowledge, procedure, whatever it is out to the people that I'm leading. Rather, I'd like to see how leaders can, and, and I don't think there's a prescription, to be honest. I think it's mm-hmm. more of a open question for people to really ask themselves. And as they keep asking, they'll discover better answers, different answers. And the question is, how can I help others in the organization besides me not excluding me necessarily, but besides me, who may be what we call knowledge keepers. So a really good example of a knowledge keeper who f- performs as a thought leader, meaning they they have you know information that is worth uh, exchanging to others, is like a top sales performer on a sales team, and while. A lot of companies employ sales trainers like you and me and consultants like you and me to come in from the outside and provide leadership and knowledge and all of that stuff. If you're on a sales team and you're not a top performer, one of the people you're likely to pay attention to more importantly or more more significantly than an outsider is someone who is accomplishing the goals on the on the very same team you're on that you want to accomplish. So now, as a leader, if we have an let's give them a name like an A player salesperson uh, who consistently accomplishes their sales targets, consistently outperforms the rest of the team, um, not in a not in a cutthroat way, just because for whatever they're doing, or or they're not doing, or for whatever reason. They just consistently are accomplishing the goals that the organization wants every salesperson on that team to accomplish. So let's put that mm-hmm. out on the table as an example. So the question really is, is how as a leader, can I influence that top performing salesperson, that A player, if you will, to share their secret sauce? And the question really becomes, If I'm that a performing sales player, why would I want to share my secret sauce? Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, I'm busy. I'm, I'm accomplishing my goals. I'm, I don't have time and what's in it for me. Like, why should I take the time to impact other people? Um, and some people would say, well, you work for the same company. Wouldn't it be a good idea? I think that's a lot of kind of altruistic thinking. I think it's nice to think that way, but I do think deep down people are motivated by what's the gain for them, sort of like a win-win. So I think a leader has to really figure out what is a win-win so that a a top-performing salesperson or a top-performing project manager or a top-performing finance person or a top-performing trainer, whatever it is, they're, they're clearly doing something, they figured it out, they figured out the formula, they have some secret source, and helping them discover why it's in a mutual interest for them and the people they would share that secret source with to benefit from that. Um, so that's another, th- that's another big topic, that whole idea of knowledge transfer. So I'm going to stop because I, I want to make sure I'm not rambling. And that makes sense. Does that make sense what I'm saying?
0: No, that absolutely does. And I I can see that there are so many reasons that that's important, right? I mean, one very obvious one is um, when you have new hires or you have more junior people, um, the more you can enable the knowledge transfer of these higher level skills, the faster they'll come up to speed and and start to perform. But then I think so many organizations don't think about um, career progression and don't necessarily think about um, succession or what happens if a key employee leaves and if information is locked into a person's head, um, first of all, you don't want to promote them out of that job because they're the only one that knows that information. And if they leave, you might end up in a really difficult situation. And so there's a lot of reasons to enable that knowledge transfer aside from just the, you know, I want to, I want to help onboard those new hires. And, um, really thinking through all the reasons that you would want to do that, I think can help make leaders understand that it should be maybe a higher priority than they've made it in the past.
1: And and I just think Elizabeth, it's more efficient for the leader, right? They can't be in every place at once. It's, it's really, um, hard for them to spread themselves too thin. Mm-hmm. So if they can deputize others in the organization to want to, um, not not be forced to or not be, you know, pressured into sharing knowledge. But if they do it for good reason and they feel like it, it, it's like what you give, you get back, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I go into that into the book, like what what actually does that person that's the knowledge keeper uh, get, as well as what does obviously the knowledge seeker get. But if you're a leader and you're helping people in the rest of the organization do that you can now focus on other things versus having to take the time to literally be that person that's transferring that knowledge and and like i said earlier it doesn't mean you don't do it it just means that you want to get others to help you get good practices spread out in the rest of the organization as quickly as possible because i think everyone benefits so that's that's what i call that knowledge transfer that's a big theme in the book the along with that, almost kind of in tandem with that, is shared accountability, and you know, my, some people might wonder what does that mean from a leadership standpoint. The best way to describe it, I think, is to say I still think you and I see a lot of lone wolf leadership out there, mm-hmm. and there's nothing better in my mind as an example as the VP of sales, because time and time again, I see a head of sales. I'm just giving them that title of VP. A VP of sales is kind of left hanging to either be the hero or the scapegoat. So if the team hits all the numbers and the business is hitting its forecast, then that person's a hero and a great hire and a great person to have on the team. And by the same token, if the team is not hitting its goals or the company's not hitting its forecast and God forbid, some bad things are happening financially to the company, it's very easy to scapegoat the VP of sales while it was her fault or his fault. Um, And I think people, I'm sorry to have to report, tend to um, very often, not accept accountability or responsibility uh, by making someone, by having someone else to blame, Mm -hmm. right? So we as an organization are losing market share or God forbid going down a negative spiral because it's all the VP of fault. So I think that's a gross mistake. And unfortunately I see that, and I think I speak for you, we see that together uh, quite a bit. And so that's the lone wolf, right? The, the person who has the broad shoulders, carries the weight of revenue generation on their shoulders. And what I like to see is this idea that I think is gaining a lot of traction. And that is that the VP of sales is responsible for sales, meaning they hire mm-hmm. people, they train them, they develop them, they manage them, they lead them. We're not taking that away from them. But... We are suggesting that the VP of sales doesn't bear the burden of being solely accountable and that accountability is shared. And therefore, in order to make that uh, viable, in order to actually have a model in an organization, because people will then say, well, that's a nice thought, but what do we do about that? Well, the what to do about that is to form a sales growth team and a sales growth team is made up of the leadership across the entire organization in other parts of the organization that sales impacts so that's pretty much every part of the organization so that would be marketing and human resources and finance and operations and for sure you'd have sales there and executive leaders so if those leaders And again, like I said, they could have titles or not have titles are meeting frequently and discussing leading as well as lagging, but more leading indicators. They can align on what to do about it, to change the course of a downward trend or to maximize the course of an upward trend. And so then there's no surprises, right? Your, Your VP of sales, if they're left as the lone leader might keep saying, yep, the numbers are coming in, the numbers are coming in. And then at the end of the quarter in the last week, oops, we had a 30% (laughs) shortfall. And, And people are like, well, what happened? You kept telling us the numbers were coming in. Well, we lost the top client. Well, our number one salesperson quit. You know, well, fill in the blank. And some of those are valid excuses. I'm not saying that the VP of sales is hiding anything, but what I am saying is that why should we as an organization be left with a one single person giving us updates and then potentially giving us bad news or a surprise? And that not only applies to sales, I think that could apply to any other part of the organization, right? I mean, you don't, your head of operations saying, sure, I have all the capacity to deliver all the work that sales has sold. And then, oops, sorry, our clients are up in arms because they're not getting the service because we didn't hire to uh, staff up for the extra, um, you know, uh, load put on us from sales. So I'm just focusing on sales cause that's the topic of my book, but I think it is a shared accountability and that's something that I'm really passionate about when it comes to leadership. Um,
0: absolutely. And I think a key element you touched on it there, but, uh, when you have that lone wolf perspective, a lot of times the, the rest of the organization isn't doesn't necessarily have a perspective into what's really going on. As you said, it's, oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Oh, it wasn't fine. Okay, you're fired. But you still lost out on all that productivity, all those results over that period of time. And so if you can have um, a group, like you said, that cross-functional group, That's getting together on a regular basis and is taking a deep enough dive to see what's coming and see, hey, you know, we have this strategy for lead gen, but it doesn't seem like it's working. We're not getting the number of qualified leads that we would need in order to hit our targets. Okay, what can what can we do from the marketing perspective? Do we need to hire more people? HR, what's your perspective on that? And you can really solve the problems before they become those big problems that would um, result in a new VP of sales on the job market. And so it's, it's definitely something that um, that's so incredibly important. And a lot of times so much is put on that, that lone wolf. And it's part of that is the decision making, you know, the, the strategy and yes, leadership is about, Big picture, and it's about strategy and looking forward. But it's a whole lot better if you can get a broad perspective on that than just depending on one person to see everything that might go wrong.
1: For sure, and and a manifestation of that cross-functional sales growth team, to your point, and and literally um, dismantling that lone wolf uh, management or leadership. Uh, philosophy is when you when we work with companies to develop sales playbooks, Mm -hmm. because a sales playbook is much more than just a bunch of best practices for selling, like how to run a meeting, how to uh, reach out to people on LinkedIn, how to utilize uh, a whole bunch of things. Right. So I think the idea of having others in the organization weigh in on the best practices for a sales playbook um, really helps round out what I think sales and certainly a VP of sales would miss, um, because number one, others in the organization can see the forest for the trees. And also, um, another big component of why you want others who are not involved in sales working on the sales playbook is they can oftentimes provide really good insights that salespeople miss. Mm -hmm. And lastly, don't give the development of a sales playbook to the VP of sales because the VP of sales, and I'm talking about broadly speaking, I know there's exceptions, but for the most part, they're not process driven. The, their job function doesn't, in in it, it doesn't encourage them to be process driven.
0: Mm-hmm. They're
1: people driven. And so they're focused on people, salespeople, developing sales, working to improve their relationships with their clients. And I think the whole idea of an organization or representatives of those areas, those five functional areas, sales, marketing, human resources, operations, and finance, if they come together to align on what are, what is our value proposition, um, what, how do we introduce ourselves? What does good delivery look like? What does a good sale look like so we can set up operations to deliver well or ship mm. the product, affected? whatever it is, it really is an integrated process. And I think um, you'll get a lot more benefit from having a sales playbook, which is usually the core process for an organization in selling and marketing to be developed by all those people that I just mentioned or all those functions. So That's why I think shared accountability is a big part of the book.
0: Definitely.
1: Um, And then I got two more for you. Um, I'm really excited about something that I see trending more and more. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a big future. And this is exactly where I am, Elizabeth, with the book right now. Meaning this this is the part that I'm writing about and doing quite a bit of research on. And that is the impact of artificial intelligence on leadership and on sales and marketing. So, so when it comes to leadership, I don't know that it's intuitive for people to be thinking about AI, but what I'm talking about is artificial intelligence can give a lot of data in a short amount of time and in a very wide range. Um, of data points to a leader to make decisions and gain insights. And it could be things like um, watching, and again, from a sales context, uh, measuring how sales individual salespeople, as well as the sales team performs in varying conditions. So with COVID, which has happened to us recently, uh, the workforce has changed dramatically. People working from home, And they're not in an office, they're not in a conference room, so their work habits have changed significantly. So I think AI can play a role in helping leaders understand who on the sales team can be best coached and managed to suit the new environment. So, for example, your salesperson working from home, perhaps you're more productive first thing in the morning and least productive later on in the day. Other salespeople, it could be the opposite. Some salespeople are very data-driven, meaning they like presentations and information uh, that is very data intense and others are different. So there's different styles. And so I think AI can keep track potentially. Now there's always that danger of big brother watching and privacy and all that stuff. So we have to be careful, but I think leaders can oftentimes take information about the people that they influence and providing it's done in a positive way, figure out how best to lead and motivate their uh, their team. So that's one role for AI. The other role for AI is customer client behavior. Mm-hmm. Again, some customers like a lot of interaction, some don't, some like a lot of detail, some don't. So again, keeping track without infringing on any kind of privacy boundaries but just that whole idea of how can we as an organization marry or or um make sure that our sales and our clients are getting the most out of the relationships together so i think ai plays a big role in that because it's very i think to, to be able to affect performance at that level you need a lot of data and ai is very good at collecting that Definitely. And then, um, and then something that you've you personally have been pushing me to, to towards thinking, because you know uh, about some of the topics in my book, is really to check out the impact of diversity on leadership. Because again, I think that's an area that I've just started researching, and I'm looking at um, leadership across the spectrum, even outside of an organization, like politics, you know, it, the leaders in Congress, the leaders, you know, in, in, uh, in, in different countries, the leaders in, in government and traditionally, um, the minorities, you know, um, have, have been in the minority and ha- I don't know that that's a healthy state of affairs because as the population gets more diverse and the workforce gets more diverse, I'd like to see a better representation. And I'm beginning to think that uh, clients and customers uh, that are dealing, especially with larger organizations, want to know how diverse your company is. Mm. Are they all of one particular demographic? Uh, Are they all more one particular agenda? Are they all of more one race than another? So I think stuff like that seems to be, at least from the initial research that I've been doing, playing a bigger factor in in leadership. So again, that's a lot. I almost think like I'm writing the book out, <laughs>
0: just,
1: tell, just answering the question.
0: Yeah, we'll just have to get a transcript of this, and that can be a whole chapter. Um, I, I really want to take a deep dive into this, especially that last one, because um, as you said, it's something I'm very passionate about. And as you said there's there's certainly a value in improved representation um, of diversity when it comes to gender when it comes to sexual orientation when it comes to race um, when it comes to national origin when it comes to um, how people grew up and where they grew up and the economic circumstances they might come from from a from an employee level it, it's so important to have leaders who understand where you're coming from. But I really like also that you mentioned your customers care about that. Whether you're in a high um, high level consulting type of a, of a field where you're having those deep dive conversations, or even if you're a big um, consumer product company and you're producing products, if you don't have diversity of perspective, especially at the leadership level, you might make some big mistakes and you might end up offending people because you're not taking their experience into account. So um, as leaders, something that we're really seeing a lot is making sure that not only do you have diversity on your teams, but that you're enabling people and creating space for their perspectives to be taken into account. And what research really shows is um, when you have a, a diverse Group of people, you're going to come up with better ideas, and you're going to end up with better performance. And so, I'm going to get off my hobby horse because I don't want to take over the conversation on this. But it is so incredibly important, and it's something that I'm glad that you're you're seeing in the research that you're doing.
1: And you know, I'm I'm becoming as passionate as you because I've been around you a long time now, and I have to tell you that, you know, when I listen to what you're saying, and and to help some of the listeners understand where we're coming from. One of the other things that my research is showing me is that the perspective between an employee and an employer is changing quite a bit. And what I mean by that is if if you look at old school versus new school, old school thinking, and you can use that frame of reference to go back as far as you want, but old school thinking for me is work and personal, your work life and your personal life was very separate. You know, you come in, you, you punch in nine to five, if you will, and you do your job and you kind of keep your, your personal life to yourself. Right. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm saying that can still happen, but what I'm noticing now is that personal slash social is playing a bigger role than ever in, in a work environment. And why do I say that? Well, I think for quite a while now, especially the younger generation coming out of college, have woken up to the fact that they're spending a large part of their life at work, working mm-hmm. for a company. And the thing that I'm noticing, and I think millennials and whatever the current generation is, I don't have a name for it, unfortunately, but you know, a, a lot of people we talk to, CEOs especially, Give millennials, I think, a bad reputation. They say they're they you know they're arrogant, they're privileged, they're demanding, um, they don't like to work as hard. I think everyone has this you know back in the day when I used to be a young person reference right could be music could be work. I think though times have changed, and that people I think it's the opposite. I I actually give credit to some of the younger people in the workforce today who really care about the mission of the company they're working for so it's not a paycheck anymore like in the old days you would go to a company and you could potentially work for until you retire right with the same company 20 it's not unheard of in fact back in the day when i used to interview employees to hire one of the big red flags was is this person a job hopper like if they weren't in a job five years or if they were in any job less than five years, they got that brand, right? They're a job hopper. They're unstable. Now I think it's the opposite. People are joining organizations and moving on because it's not fulfilling their own missions and, and values particularly. And so what I think, so why am I saying all of this in terms of leadership? Well, I think what's going on in the world is really creeping into um, discussions at work. And there's a great uh, couple of, in doing my research videos by Cisco, which which has a really, you know, the, the big company, Cisco, CISCO, not the other one, and uh, the tech company. And Cisco um, did uh, a couple of interviews, and what they discovered is that HR at Cisco, and I think they speak for a lot of big companies, plays a massive role in dealing with current affairs and how their employees are looking to the leadership of their companies to give them guidance. And it could be everything from race tensions, it could be economics, it could be what's been going on with the pandemic. So again, I'm looking at leadership as playing a really big role back to diversity in making sure that that as a topic is getting addressed, but not just you know, um, ethnic diversity, but views of, you know, diversity in viewpoints, Uh, you know, diversity in what political party you you affiliate with and try to break down some of those barriers that cause a lot of problems at the office because people um, are bringing their personal lives in many ways to their professional lives. So I'll get off my hobby horse and uh, (laughs) just say that that's something I'm really passionate about
0: definitely i think um many people have realized you know the the place where we spend the vast majority of our time that we're awake is at work and so um it's important to to really understand that and for leaders to understand it and certainly i think that's one of the things that was um becoming a, a bigger part of the consciousness before covid and now that um now that many people are still working from home, and you know there are companies that are going to be doing that indefinitely, um, there are companies that are going to just offer it as an option on an ongoing basis because they've seen that it can work. It, that idea of you know people are people and your real life. Uh, impacts who you are at work and, you know, whether you've got kids at home who are doing, um, you know, remote education or whether you've got, um, you know, whatever your living situation might be, you know, it's difficult for you to find a quiet place in your house. Um, You and your spouse or partner need to have opposite schedules to manage childcare for really little kids. All of that, if if leaders can take it into account, Um, it's amazing the, what an experience that provides to the employee to feel cared for at that level. Certainly, you know, you're not coming in as a therapist, but um, just understanding the real-life circumstances that people are in and um, meeting people where they are. And that's something that we're hearing so often from leaders. Um, they need to do because it's being pulled out of them, whether they want to bring it or not. Um, that's, that's what their employees need.
1: Yeah, and think about, you know, back to personal blending in with professional, I mean, look at where we are with Zoom calls that are, you know, uh, virtual calls, whatever the platform that are uh, the way that most companies are communicating with their employees. Now, you're literally on camera seeing a person's home, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're either in their bedroom, or you're in their living room, some cases, the kitchen. I mean, it's just amazing to me how it was a little weird at first that someone might see my bed in the background and now it's like ho oh, hum you know it's just kind of like normal for many companies i i, I don't want to hide it right it's just who and so there again it's a it's a simple example of where you know people's personal lives are starting to blend in more with their professional lives so Um, And I think leaders need to really be aware of that. And I think they are. I think that's why I think, you know, this whole trend towards combining the two is, is getting a lot of traction.
0: Definitely. Um, As one very clear example of that, you and many of our listeners have uh, heard my cat or met in, um, you know, on Zoom and many of our (laughs) clients and partners and other people, because she is definitely invested in, um, you know, connecting (laughs) to everybody available. She's a loud little creature. All right. Uh, I think we've kind of naturally drifted into what I wanted to talk about next. And I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I'd love to hear um, from you. You're having a lot of conversations conversations like I am with leaders, what are some of the big challenges that you're hearing from them or the concerns or the goals that they have, um, especially in these times, like what we were just talking about?
1: So I think we've spent a lot of time talking about it, but I think it's one which is distinguishing leadership and management. And it's a challenge when people either don't see the distinction or they're confused about it. So I think we've kind of debated that one extensively that we don't have to revisit. But I think one big challenge is, I think a lot of leaders, especially new leaders, are struggling on how to coach. Like, what is it to coach? Um, Am I a good coach? How do I coach? So I think coaching as a leadership principle is a challenge. Um, The one that makes me laugh, and I've heard you laugh too, is this idea about being a micromanager.
0: Uh-huh. And,
1: you know, I think we we have a good fix for that. And we say, you know, rather than beat yourself up or, or try to eliminate micromanagement, see if you can help people that you lead micromanage you. And so this whole idea of managing up versus managing down uh, tends to, address that concern pretty well. Uh, lack of accountability is the other one that we just talked about quite a bit. But I'll just add to that when, when what we see is a big confusion about what is accountability. And when we ask people, can you define it? Um, I've yet to find a really good definition. Most people struggle with what are they really looking for? in accountability. And most people land on, well, we want people to follow through on their promises or, you know, uh, deliver on, on what they said they would do. And I think it's a little more fundamental than that, to be honest, I think it's a matter of goal setting. And more importantly, if you set goals, knowing how to set goals, knowing how to manage your time so that you can accomplish your goals and then Being open, I think this is a really good leadership fix for that accountability question, is helping people um, publish their goals so that they can get some uh, feedback. It it could be Mm. feedback on the goals themselves. Are those the right goals or are they more tasks? Because we see that people tend to confuse goals and tasks. But more importantly, how can either me as your peer or as your leader or as your manager or both help you support you coach you to accomplish your goals that to me is kind of like a lot of um the accountability part uh i think other leaders struggle with hiring onboarding and training leaders uh the probably a big one elizabeth is that there's still a lot of questions about how do you make a leader meaning Mm-hmm. I see a lot of companies, especially the bigger companies, grooming leaders almost on a one by one, like they're a plant or a <laughs> you know, a vegetable. You got imagine you've got this garden and you're you're like nurturing it and giving it the right amount of sun exposure and you're watering it. And man, that's a lot of heavy lifting. And I'm just curious if the dynamics of leadership are changing because the pace of business is changing that there is a faster, more efficient way to uh, develop leaders and that maybe the whole idea of you developing another person could be called into question and more removing the stumbling blocks so that they develop themselves as as leaders, which leads me to the very last point that I want to make about the challenges of leadership. And this to me is the greatest of all. And that is I think a massive misrepresentation that leaders are born, not made. I couldn't argue more against that philosophy because I don't believe anyone's born with leader stamped on their forehead, nor do I believe that leader um, leadership has a set of properties because I say, great. If leadership has a set of properties, where is it located? physically? Is it in your elbow? Everyone talks about the brain. And I think if you you read a lot of, you know, science that, that examines the brain, there's no leadership in a brain. It's like neurons and synapses and whatever, but no leadership. Is it in the waste paper basket? Is it somewhere in a book, right? And so I really think where I land on leadership versus leadership, you're born versus uh, it's something that leaders are made. Um, I think leadership is discovered. I honestly do. And I think some of the best leaders I've ever seen uh, are very humble and they don't tap themselves on the back and say, hey, I'm a leader. I've graduated. I know everything about leadership. I'm done. So I think that whole idea really needs to Uh, be called into question. And that context, back to what we talked about before, really shapes uh, leadership probably more than anything else. I'd be curious what you think.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, It's something that uh, I I think we've touched on multiple times through our conversation today. But um, you know, that that idea of context of where you're coming from. You know, a, a big challenge that I'm hearing a lot from people, similar to what you identified a few minutes ago, is how do I make real connections with my people? You know, we've, we've talked to people who were hired as key sales leaders during the pandemic working remotely, and they've got, you know, multiple sales managers reporting into them, and they've never met in person. And then they've got all the sales teams under those people who they've never met in person. And how do I really get to know people um, and have them feel like we're all part of the same team. If we're, you know, hiring and developing people and that's a context. And so if you can come to that with a context of let's, let's all be willing and open to be vulnerable and and open up to each other and connect because we've got these limitations, but they're there. (laughs) We're not going to get rid of them Um, versus, you know, kind of throwing your hands up and saying, okay, we're not going to really connect in person until you know, 2023 or whatever at this point, and so um, you know, I guess we'll just kind of give up. And that that idea of context and paradigm and mindset—they're um, they're all tied together. And so yeah. often, if you, if you can approach things um, with, as you said, that sense of discovery, that sense of openness, um, you often talk about kind of living in a question. It's a yeah. it's a really positive and productive way to live, as opposed to the limited way that we so often. Um, You know, we put ourselves in boxes and we put the people around us in boxes and that doesn't do anybody
1: any favors. That's right.
0: All right. Um, I'm looking at the clock and I know we need to wind down. So I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. Do you have any resources that you might recommend to our listeners? It could be very specific to what we've been talking about so far or, um, you know, completely off the wall. If you want to recommend Dr. Seuss, feel free. So it could be books, (laughs) podcasts, videos, whatever it might be.
1: I'm going to give you three so two are top of mind because of the research that i'm doing with the book and the third one is more for negotiation um number one is uh on paradigms and there's a guy who's he's called a futurist and i believe that's a term i discovered i didn't know it existed uh the book is the business of discovering. Sorry, The Business of Discovering the Future. And the author is Joel Barker, B-A-R-K-E-R. If you're not much of a reader, because I'm not much of a reader, I love to watch a YouTube that captures the same thing. Check out his YouTube uh, that he delivered at the CF Business Forum, The Importance of Paradigms in the 21st Century. And I'm sure you'll, you'll probably provide a, a link to that in the notes. Absolutely. The, um, so that's one. And there's another guy that I don't think is that well-known, but he's uh, pretty much a, 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 a big force in the area of leadership. And his name is Michael C. Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N. He's a Harvard Business School professor, and uh, it's a pretty heady topic and title, so I'll give it to you slowly. It's Leadership and Leadership Development, an ontological approach. Mm. And at first I had no idea what the word ontological meant. So I had to look it up and ontology according to Wikipedia is the branch of philosophy that studies concepts such as existence, being, becoming and reality. So why, and again, that's pretty heady, but why is that important? Because oftentimes we hear, how do I do a better job of being a leader? Uh, What do I need to do? And I think that's a fundamentally flawed question because I think a more valuable question is, who do I need to be uh, to be a better leader? And certainly there's some doing that follows that. So that's a great, uh, he's a great author. And again, he's done a bunch on YouTube and there's some books. I don't have any one particular one to, uh, to recommend other than the Harvard Business School title I said. Uh, which is leadership and leadership development, an ontological uh, approach. If you, if you Google that, you'll get an article. And then the last, completely different, but more for sellers and negotiators, is um, never split the difference, negotiate like your life depends on it. Um, and the author is Chris Voss, and he was a former FBI negotiator And he dealt with terrorists and bank robbers and bad people and he had to literally use what i would consider to be some pretty effective leadership meaning he these people didn't report to him but he was leading them in in terms of influencing vital decisions like life Mm -hmm. and death on uh talking people down from a really really bad situation so uh never split the difference chris voss if you just Google that. You'll probably get the link to Amazon. I'm sure Elizabeth will do a great job of of putting that in the notes. So that's it. That's all i got for you, Elizabeth.
0: All right. Those are excellent resources. And I'm actually going to throw in one recommendation because I got a notice during our conversation today that it was finished. Um, you touched on micromanagement as a challenge that leaders are facing. And um, I worked with our marketing Uh, Team to put together a resource on uh, what we call operating stage, which really gives you a sense of when micromanagement uh, is appropriate and when it's not appropriate and how to do it better. And so we'll make sure to include that in the show notes because I think that's really relevant to some of what we've been talking about today. Awesome. All right. So thank you so, so much for coming back on the show, Charles. It's been too long.
1: My pleasure. It's always fun with you, Elizabeth. Thank you
0: definitely and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show you can find the notes and resources for everything that Charles and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com pod 299 Make sure to tune into the podcast next week. I am talking to a wonderful, wonderful guest, Lisa Earl McLeod. She's the author of Selling with a Noble Purpose. And she really um, shares some of the same themes that we've been talking about today, about um, really thinking about context and where you're coming from. Uh, You definitely don't want to miss it. If you enjoyed today's show, please recommend us to a friend. That is the best way for people to discover the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, make sure to do that. That way you'll hear every new episode as soon as it goes up. You can subscribe for free, wherever you might be listening today. We love feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or whatever platform that you're in, um, or email us with direct feedback, questions, or suggested guests at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook, and don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling.